Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Debrief. This week, we're talking about how Vatican II can inform the Synod, the dangers of an ideological Catholicism, and then why the papacy is the bulwark against schism. Hey, Mike, and welcome back to the show. A little bit more of an educational show as opposed to a news sort of themed show. What was the key reason for choosing that this week? Well, as the as the Synod goes on, a lot of it is taking place under, you know, pontifical secrecy and confidentiality. And I didn't necessarily want to delve into speculation about things that really aren't being shared with us. But I have been observing a lot of the chatter in the church and a lot of the things that actually have been discussed by the leaders of the synod and um also seen a lot of criticism and i think i think that this is a dialogue that's going on outside the, outside the synod and i think some things need to be clarified so i thought let's let's try to have an open-ended conversation i think we can both relate to the overarching themes and see uh may, hopefully some people can learn and and maybe it will yeah, help we'll do something I, helpful yeah. Alrighty. Well, friends, welcome to The Debrief. It's our weekly show where we chat about news, questions, and controversies uh, facing the Catholic Church. I'm Dominic Souza, the founder of Smart Catholics. And I'm Mike Lewis, the editor and co-founder of the website Where Peter Is. So our first story, how the then Father Joseph Ratzinger changed the direction of Vatican II. Mike, you wrote an article last night entitled Ormond Rush and Sister Gabriella on Ratzinger on Divine Revelation bit of a mouthful. Perhaps you can give us a little bit of an explanation. You mentioned in your piece, you had a deja vu moment in relation to these articles. Yeah, I, I apologize for the title. It was just, I, I wanted to get it all in there and it wasn't particularly clever, but I thought, you know, let's, let's just do some name dropping. So that's, that's what I did. Um, in terms of the deja vu, it was funny because yesterday I woke up to uh, a couple of messages and seeing in my, uh, in my Twitter feed that people were praising this address given by one of the Synod participants, um, Father Ormond Rush. Uh, Father Rush, who I was not terribly aware of until yesterday, um, is an Australian priest, theologian. He's written a, um, a large book on Vatican II. He's considered a leading Vatican II scholar. And the deja vu is that he started with a story that um, our own sister Gabriella uh, wrote about in her article a week earlier. Um, and so I was kind of hoping that maybe Father Rush was a reader of where Peter is and uh, yeah. had, had borrowed from her. But in fact, actually, I talked to sister Gabriella and it's actually the opposite. She's read his book. And so he's uh, influenced her ideas about Vatican II. But the story is uh regarding the dawn of um, the council. Um, prior to the council, uh, members of the Roman Curia wrote up a number of preparatory documents that were supposed to guide the discussion of, of each of the council sessions. And I mean, we're aware of these preparatory documents with these synods. Um, they get scrutinized, they get criticized. Well, most of the bishops, and, and keep in mind that there were over 2,000 bishops that participated in the council, um, were unhappy with the way that these documents had taken shape. And along with them was one of the theologians that was brought by the German Cardinal of Cologne, Cardinal Frings, 
uh, a young Joseph Ratzinger, who was serving as, um, he was just a priest, he was serving as the paratus or the theological expert that Cardinal Frings brought along. And in particular, he had some criticisms of a document, um, of one of the schema documents um, that had the English title on the sources of Revelation. And Ratzinger was among those who criticized this document. Um, for one thing, he objected to the title, Sources of Revelation. What do you mean? God is the source, the one single solitary source of revelation. God is revelation. Jesus is the incarnate word. Jesus is the word of God. Um, anyway, uh, the story goes that, um, that Father Ratzinger uh, gave a speech to the uh, German bishops in, I think, October 10th, right before the council, before the council opened, um, about the need for um, a change in approach from what this document offered. Uh, Sister Gabriella wrote about that speech, um, and uh, Father Rush spoke about a lot of the issues that um, eventually went into the document that was called De verbum, which means the word of God, as opposed to the sources of the word of God. Um, but I thought that one um, one paragraph that Father Rush uh, quoted from Ratzinger, so I'm quoting Ratzinger here, sort of encapsulates the competing views from the original schema to mm -hmm. what the council fathers ultimately produced with De verbum. Mm -hmm. Ratzinger said, the real question behind the discussion could be put this way. Was the intellectual position of anti-modernism, the old, the old policy of exclusiveness, condemnation, and defense leading to an almost neurotic denial of all that was new to be continued? Or would the church, after it had taken all the necessary precautions to protect the faith, turn over a new leaf? and move on to a new and positive encounter with its own origins, with its fellow human beings, and with the world of today. So he is describing how we are moving away from this anti-modernist view, while not embracing modernism, but this, this view that is saying no mm -hmm. to a positive encounter with the world, uh, with a more evangelical influence. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm, I'd like to ask you, like, well, about that. So com coming out of my background as a radical traditionalist, modernism was the big archon main problem behind everything. And of course, the traditionalists um, were the, the remnant who were going to, you know, preserve the faith and, and guard the deposit or something and, and, you know, allow us to have a future, something like this. Um, against all of the schismatics and all of the problems. And so I'm really curious. Um, well, and, and pursuant to that, Pedro Gabriel wrote an article about how uh, radical traditionalism today is a form of modernism. And that absolutely, I mean, that rocked my world while I was working through some of my deconstruction. So first I want to ask you, how, how, what is the definition of modernism? Has that changed? Um, well, is it still the big deal that it was initially... Uh, addressed to be being such a broad title i think that um modernism itself can be misconstrued in a number of ways but um 
modernism as a specific heresy that was addressed right around the tur turn of the 20th century. It was opposed by uh, Pope St. Pius X, most significantly. Um, he, he wrote at least, well, he definitely wrote one encyclical, Pascendi, and maybe a couple of more, maybe you know, know them. But it, it was something, obviously, that a lot of people um, were afraid of taking hold in Catholicism. It emerged from liberal um, Protestantism. It was an approach to the Catholic faith, or an approach to the Christian faith, I guess, that rather than, um, you know, as we were becoming more scientifically aware, as we were developing more of a historical consciousness, and when we looked at the claims of the church in terms of science, in terms of history, um, a lot of times the the truth of the faith would be reduced to symbol, allegory, myth. Um, a surface level reading of a thing. Yeah. So, I mean, the typical, I mean, the Jesus seminar, I think, was a, was a big movement a few decades ago where basically the, they separated the Jesus of history, like the actual Jesus that walked around. Um, you know, maybe he wasn't sinless. Maybe he wasn't born of a virgin. Maybe, uh, you know, when they say things like he lives, you know, you know he, um, he rose from the dead in our hearts or through his work, you know, message taking away through his message. Exactly. Um, we, we ha have eternal life when we, when we care for one another. I, I mean, a lot of, um, I mean, that's at least sort of the stereotype, the way it's portrayed. Um, but it, it's also, uh, the idea that, um, Jesus isn't truly present in the Eucharist or that the, the seven sacraments aren't efficacious or that, um, you know, some, I, I'm sure there's some Christians out there who don't think that Jesus literally existed or, um, mm -hmm. they have ideas of the church, not really I, a lot of the people who, who embrace maybe some, some Gnostic gospels, um, might come up with alternative histories about Jesus. Basically it's, it's an anti-credal view of Christianity, or it's a view of the creed as not really not being true in the sense that the church understands truth. Mm -hmm. um, now, of course, at one point, um, Pius X, I believe, described modernism as the synthesis of all heresies. Mm -hmm. And I think that that particular quote has been overused and has been exploited, especially by traditionalists. Um, anything can be considered modernism. Um, <laughs> there's, uh, you know, if it's modern, it's modernism. Altar girls, modernists. Um, you know, I, I mean, just certain things like that. Communion in the hand, modernist. You know, even though these, um, it's, it's, nothing about the the theological um underpinnings of of the truths of the faith but it gets thrown around i've been called a modernist i'm sure you've been called a modernist um but uh and so yeah the definition has been warped it's imprecise um one thing that i would have to say though is and this is something that i've read in a couple of places and a couple of theologians have have suggested is that nearly every council happens in response to a heresy. Um, people talk about the Council of Trent 
was a response to the Protestant Reformation. And, you know, it made some serious reforms like the seminary system, um, it, not allowing people to charge for indulgences, more clearly defining the sacraments and the canon of, of scripture. All of these things needed to be done. Um, some of them were actual reforms that were brought forth by some of the Protestant reformers, some of them repudiated, obviously, but there was a need for a shakeup. If, if the church at the time had been completely healthy, then there wouldn't have been a need for a council. And it's been suggested that Vatican II, in reality, was a response to modernism. Because we had this world that was rapidly secularizing, um, a lot of people in the church were adopting these secularizing ideas and trying to impose them throughout the church. But on the other hand, the church itself had not really grappled with historical criticism, had not um, directly addressed, although I think this is overplayed, but I think traditionalists definitely incorporated um, the role of science and faith. Um, can we, you know, how can we approach the scientific world or, or historical knowledge while still maintaining the truths of the faith? You know, if, if our church is adaptable, it's got to adapt to these changing circumstances. It's probably not the world's best explanation of modernism. And it's been a long time since I read Pedro's piece, so forgive me. Mm -hmm. But um, I think there are uh, one of the things that, um, might be described as modernist, and I don't think I'm borrowing it from Pedro's fate piece, but I think it's relevant to, to our discussion, is that I think it's funny that traditionalists will tend to place a lot of emphasis mm -hmm. on supernatural things like the unapproved apparitions at Garabandal or um, end times prophecies, the three days of darkness, um, biblical ideas like the great apostasy. And, um, you know, they think about like a literal Adam and Eve, and they think about, I mean, they talk about how COVID was divine retribution for the Amazon ceremony in, you know, in 2019. Yeah. Like, so they have uh -huh. this, this fantastical view right. of the supernatural that is not in any way compatible. Mm -hmm. with um, history and science as we understand them. They will ignore the scientific understanding. They'll ignore the historical understanding. And yet, when we are called as Catholics, when we read in Scripture that Christ tells us that hell will not prevail over the church and he gives the keys of the kingdom to, to Peter, mm -hmm. oh, well, you're just, you, you just see the Pope as a magician. Yeah, the magical papacy, the, you know, yeah. the ha-ha, you're silly, can't you, it's it's kind of funny, because it's like, on one hand, the foundation of how the faith is handed down mm -hmm. through the ages, through the successors of the apostles, and it says so explicitly in countless magisterial documents, and in scripture, mm -hmm. and yeah, you're a little bit too. They're saying, yeah, you're a little bit too literal there. It's yeah. It's so true. we're gonna so. <laughs> we're gonna get to ideology here and, and schism in a moment. But I had one last little question. Um, going back to that quote from then Father Ratzinger, um, I liked the line: 
where he says, we we're turning over a new leaf, moving on to a new and positive encounter with our own origins, our fellow human beings in the world of today. It's a different attitude as opposed to the, um, uh, the, the, well, to quote the word, a neurotic condemnation of this synthesis of heresies that has just infected and infiltrated everything. And um, I'm just curious, maybe what changed in the sense of this was a tone of that the church held for a while. And then we had the, the world wars, perhaps, and they're in the Cold War and everything going on. And then now Father Ratzinger says, okay, we need to readjust our attitude and our, our own sense of self um, and just, just change the tone. I'm just curious, maybe what do you think changed? Well, that? I think history bore this out. I mean, we look mm -hmm. at the, the decline of Christendom. We look at uh, the church splitting in half in 1054. Um, obviously, our, our Eastern brothers and sisters maintained a lot of those traditions, but then those lands got totally swamped by, by you know, the, the growth of Islam mm -hmm. um, in, the, in the subsequent centuries. We look at the Protestant Reformation. We look at the Enlightenment. We look at the French Revolution. Then we look at the Communist Revolution. Then we look at Nazism. Mm -hmm. um, if, we, if we read the statements of the Pope, going back through history, like even the late 19th, early 20th century, we see this triumphalistic error has no rights. Yeah. Uh, Catholicism must be the confessional religion of, of society. We must reject democracy. Um, the, the Pope took a stance of being a prisoner of the Vatican um, for 50 to 70 years because he was insisting that he had th this right to temporal power mm -hmm. in, first of all, in the Italian pen peninsula, which is supposedly 90%, 95% Catholic at the time, and yet the Pope can't even get a word in edgewise. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, it sh and so we're seeing that Christianity, by acting like, like our next topic, acting mm -hmm. like an ideology, mm -hmm. as opposed to living out a life in Christ, um, was not being effective in yeah. in responding to this i mean and and still we haven't found mm -hmm. we haven't yet found the right response i think that vatican ii was on the right track i think it's in the process of being implemented and i think that both benedict and francis have the right vision mm -hmm. but the results remain to be seen but yeah. i think i think having that openness and realizing okay you know the early church didn't have a seat at the table the church of the Christendom era decided who got to sit at the table. Mm -hmm. We're in a situation right now where we still, in a lot of cases, have a seat at the table. In certain mm -hmm. places, we've actually gotten a seat of, at the table where we didn't before. We look at uh, what's going on in Abu Dhabi and our discussions of fraternity in the Abrahamic house. It's like, this is an Islamic country. Yeah. And they're actually opening up a compound that has a synagogue and a Christian church in it, along with a mosque mm -hmm. where we can worship in peace. Like this is, I mean, it, it's funny because traditionalists tend to only look at it through the Catholic mindset, mm -hmm. but to look at it through the Islamic mindset, holy cow, like we're actually learning how to coexist and have right. conversations with one another. Right. Um, and and so I think, I think we're seeing these small incremental wins. We're seeing Pope Francis actually having a, uh, respect in the wider culture among world leaders that 
I don't think a pope in the mold of Pius the Ninth would yeah. have today. So yeah. um, I think I think that that's really what he's going for, and I think that's the tension that we're facing. Mm -hmm. It's those two yeah. worlds. Yeah, I, I agree. And all of this stuff, these have been things that I've been chewing on. It, it seems like, um, if I were to put it in one way, it's, we've, the church has been feeling like it's fighting a rearguard action for a long time, trying to hold on, like you said, seat at the table, temporal power, and so on. And then Vatican II did a whole bunch of disarming or disarmament of our, a lot of ideologies that had crept in. And all of a sudden, it took a space of recognition to realize we actually need to, we need new axioms for how to engage with the world because the gospel message herself hasn't itself hasn't changed but we now have like he says a new encounter we need to yeah reorient ourselves so let's talk about the dangers of ideology there's been a lot of chatter about various specific issues uh, same-sex blessings women's ordination divorce and remarriage and yet the synod's organizers continue to say the synod is not about changing doctrine the other day you wrote about the the dubia that um the, the dubia cardinals putting pope francis to the test in a way similar to jesus interlocutors challenging jesus over whether they should pay taxes or not so why this fixation that's just prevalent everywhere on issues and proposals and specific outcomes i think that there is a tendency especially in american culture to want to know what somebody's really up to um when and a lot of this is is the fault of humans who are flawed but it's what does pope francis really have up his sleeve what does he really mean by this um if he's going to let this person talk about this isn't this an indication that he really supports it or if he met with these people isn't that a sign that really he's trying to promote this idea um, and I think it's, it's something that has really infected, um, the American mindset Our we see our church and this, this applies across the board, um, in a binary way. If you are a Catholic who, uh, supports the rights of immigrants, if you are a Catholic who supports, um, you know, helping to, to prevent climate change, well, really you're working for the Democrats. If you're a Catholic who is firmly resolved against abortion, who uh, speaks openly of chastity, um, you know, who, who likes, uh, who speaks positively of, of adoration, even, you might be branded uh, a, a right-wing Catholic. And I think a lot of it has to do with our political system. We don't have coalitions in the same way that other, you know, other European countries or parliamentary systems that countries around the world have. Um, and I think there's a lot of suspicion. I think, I think ultimately it comes down to an outcome. Um, you know, you hear about people condemning, uh, pro-life Democrats because they aren't, even though they say they are against abortion, well, how are you going to vote? And I find that when I put something forward about the idea of papal authority, or, um, when I criticize the way that a, um, you know, a, a Catholic public figure is opposed to Pope Francis's authority or calls him a modernist or a heretic, the response will be, do you, do you support gay marriage? It's like, we're, we're, that, that's not, I mean, it confounds me because I have stepped away from 
I mean, it's been over 10 years that I've stepped away from paying any attention whatsoever to uh, U.S. secular politics. I found it very cynical, depressing, uh, dishonest, and uh, just, I don't know, I felt dirty after the, after, you know, every time I would, you know, look at a, yeah. a presidential approving a, approval poll. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, I decided to just sort of like, let's, let's absorb, let's absorb the faith. Um, I found one quote that I included in the article because it describes where I was before, where I was mm -hmm. when I was in that political mindset. Um, it was Cardinal Willette, who is a Canadian Cardinal. He just retired because he turned to 80 of, as the uh, prefect for the dicastery for bishops. So mm -hmm. um, he was a holdover. He was probably the longest holdover, I think, from um, Pope Benedict's prefects. Mm -hmm. um, and he originally, during the synods on the family, he was considered part of the conservative wing. But then when Amoris Letizia came out, he read the document. Um, he found it convincing. He granted his assent and he wrote an article about it in La, Sor La Osservatore Romano. Now, I don't know how long it's been since you read Amoris Letizia from beginning to end. Um, but in the very beginning, Pope Francis says, you know, I would like you to take this document as a whole, read it slowly, read it from the beginning. These two chapters focus on this. This next chapter focuses on that. And then yada, 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 until he gets up to chapter eight, which some people may find challenging. And then chapter nine is about this. Well, Cardinal Ouellette made this observation. And I have to confess, on my own part, there was some guilt. Um, he wrote, some made it impossible for themselves to appreciate anything of the new papal document because they first checked whether this chapter confirmed their pre-existing views or not. Um, this is not the disposition of a Catholic mm -hmm. who is open to learning from the universal pastor of the church. Right. Um, and I, I don't know if I, I think I did it because that was what everyone else was doing with Amoris Letizia. But I think at that point I was already mm -hmm. sort of moved beyond uh, being terribly concerned uh, mm -hmm. that the Pope was going to apostatize, apostatize. Right. but um, I did that. I remember doing that with Evangelii Gaudium, you know, when Francis first became Pope, his first major document, mm -hmm. looking for the passages on abortion. Oh, yes. He, you know, he, he spoke out against abortion. He's pro-life. Um, and it's, it's amazing. And it's funny because of the paragraph where he says that um, Pope Francis also says, but equally valuable are the lives of the poor and those who are on the margins and those who have been cast away by society. And it, but it's interesting because depending on your ideology, you were looking at um, just that the, the half of the paragraph that, that you mm -hmm. wanted to read. Yeah. Yeah. That, that quote right there, they first checked whether this chapter or this content or this quote confirmed their preexisting views or not. That realization hit me maybe 11 years ago where I, be, as I think Pope Francis was being um, not sworn in, but uh, whatever, elected. And around that time, uh, I was starting to very seriously grapple with my relationship to the papacy because uh, being raised, we had this um, uh, ambivalent or, or antagonistic view to almost anything the Holy Father had to say. We're all constantly judging them. And at one point I realized how how am I able ever to accurately judge what the Pope says? Because they are career Catholics, if you could put it in properly that way. They're 
80 years old. They spent their whole lives reading everything I haven't. And I'm going to read something that they've provided or they've put out and then try to judge that. I would need to know everything to be able to assess whether they were right or not. And I realized I couldn't keep holding that view. It was ridiculous for me as a 25-year-old twerp. Uh, and now 35-year-old twerp, I'd still, it's not a, you know, appropriate to hold and so on. So I, like you say, I used to do this myself. Alrighty, so our, our last story, we're talking about Cardinal Burke, Bishop Strickland, and the possibility of schism. So recently, Cardinal Burke appeared on the Catholic Answers Live to defend the dubia and the positions he's taken on Pope Francis' teachings. Many have highlighted the statement that he made, if your bishop or the supreme pastor of the church is affirming things not in accord with sacred tradition or the deposit of faith, that can't command your obedience. You can't command obedience to do something against faith and morals. So Bishop Joseph Strickland shared this quote, offered his support of Cardinal Burke, and yet you tweeted they're on the road to schism. So what's wrong with what they said? You know, this goes back to the to that exact same issue. It's does this teaching of the Pope confirm what we want him to say? Um the problem with this with this uh statement that that Cardinal Burke said, where he said, if your bishop or the supreme pastor of the church, the Pope, is affirming things not in accord with sacred tradition, that can't command your obedience. But what is implicit in that statement is a rejection of what the First Vatican Council teaches about the faith. Ultimately, it's about what the what Christ promised to the church. So I want to quote from Pastor Eternus. And, and this is, I mean, this is really the crux of the traditionalist heresy, for lack of a better term, honestly. This is the, the traditionalist heresy versus the Catholic position versus thinking with the church. So this comes from the document on papal authority, Pastor Eternus from Vatican I. It's chapter four, and it comes from uh, paragraphs number six and seven. The council father said, so this is, this is a council teaching. This is from an ecumenical council. This see of St. Peter always remains unblemished by any error in accordance with the divine promise of our Lord and Savior to the prince of his disciples. The prince of his disciples is Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. Next paragraph. This gift of truth and never failing faith was therefore divinely conferred on Peter and his successors in this sea so that they might discharge their exalted office for the salvation of all. And so that the whole flock of Christ might be kept away by them from the poisonous food of error and be nourished with the sustenance of heavenly doctrine. Thus, the tendency to schism is removed and the whole church is preserved in unity and resting on its foundation can stand firm against the gates of hell. What I want to ask Cardinal Burke is, do you accept this teaching of the council at the Vatican 
in the 19th century. Do you affirm that the gift of truth and never failing faith was divinely conferred on Peter and his successors? And is this gift what removes the tendency of schism? What I see is these two bishops and many others, and shame on Catholic Answers, honestly, for having this man on their program and throwing him softball questions and giving him a platform because mm. they did damage to the faith. Shame on them for allowing a cardinal to preach against this doctrine of the faith. Sorry, I'm on a soapbox, but this, I mean, this is what riles me up. People want to call me a modernist. People want to call me a leftist. People want to call me a heretic, a dissident. Well, explain to me how you can reconcile Cardinal Burke's position that the successor to Peter, Pope Francis, and frankly, he denies a lot of teachings of John Paul II and Paul VI and Vatican II, for that matter. But I'm sorry. I'm done. Like, please, Cardinal Burke, you are the heretic. You are the one who is teaching error. Please, I pray for the sake of your soul. I heard you breathing during that podcast interview. You sound like you still have problems with your lungs from the COVID that almost took your life. You have a second chance to convert and pledge your fidelity to renew the oath you took to the Pope when you became a cardinal and return to the truth of the Catholic faith and stop leading souls astray. And Bishop Strickland, stop listening to him. I know these aren't your ideas. Stop listening to Deacon Keith Fournier. Stop listening to Cardinal Burke. Stop listening to Father Art Altman and all of these other quote unquote traditional Catholics who don't know what the heck they're talking about. Uh, obviously he was demoted by Pope Francis. Um, he was he maybe sees that he was treated unjustly. Maybe there's personal hurt, personal animus there. Um, maybe Pope Francis has said something to him in private that he doesn't appreciate. And, you know, popes are sinners. Popes can make mistakes. Popes can make prudential errors, but they cannot teach heresy. They cannot teach doctrinal, doctrinal error from the chair of Peter. And I'm not just talking about infallible teachings and you know it. So anyway. Well, thanks for that, Mike. Honestly, that's why I wanted to start this show was for the mic drops, uh, because that's what I see you doing on Twitter. Which, and it's just fun. I figured let's just chat about that. But hey, that's the name of the website where Peter is. There is the church. And if you take that away um, and I had that taken away from me and I've been rediscovering that. So that's why I'm very I'm grateful for the work that you do. And honestly, I'm continually surprised. And you've told me how you are, too, of the number of people, surprising kinds of people out there uh, who do show up, who do listen in, who do read, um, and are inspired by the work that you are doing. So I know I'm one of them, and that's why we've started the community Smart Catholics, to create a community of people who are interested in these sort of discussions and want to find out who else is out there, which is, you know, it's not always easy, especially if you're on Catholic Twitter. So you can check out smartcatholics.com. Uh, to hang out and meet out, meet, meet up with other people. And we do have a private Where Peter Is group where you can ask questions uh, of each other, share insights, and then suggest topics for us to bring up on this show. And if you uh, want to uh, read articles and commentaries and uh, 
listen to faithful Catholics and, and their spiritual reflections, uh, please visit wherepeteris.com and um, please uh, support us on Patreon if you can. Fantastic. Friends, thanks for joining us. When it comes to news and controversies in the Catholic Church, stay curious, informed, and engaged. God bless. God bless.